0: this edition of the Decipher podcast we speak to director Tom Francis and senior planner Anthony Hayes. We discuss the SCL Delay and Disruption Protocol. Originally published in 2005 and updated in 2017, the protocol has become a key document in the analysis and management of time in construction projects and disputes. But what is its real purpose and why do we need a protocol? Okay, so Tom, what is the SCL Delay and Disruption Protocol and what does it set out?
1: Stuart. So I guess, um, I guess, in my view it's it provides guidance um, and possibly uh, tries to be consistent with what what we call best practice in terms of um, considering delay and disruption issues that arise on construction disputes. Uh, and from that, basically, the two main issues obviously are extensions of time and how we deal with those, and equally, and as importantly, how we deal with uh, the, the cost effect of those delays in terms of prolongation, disruption, and other heads of claim. Um, the points I'd, I'd note through the protocol are, I guess it's, it's overrunning principle is to try and avoid unnecessary costs in terms of how we, um, uh, we settle uh, or analyse disputes, um, try and avoid the need to go to a third party tribunal by perhaps um, standardising the approach that analysts and so forth adopt in terms of methodology and the like, and really just to try and give some common sense Balanced guidance um, that reflects interests of all parties to the dispute. Obviously, the second edition came out uh, in twenty seventeen. It's Kind of twenty two core principles in that document, covering a broad spectrum of issues around delay uh, and disruption uh, as a whole. And obviously, that um, really developed quite significantly from the first edition, that came out some fifteen years prior to that in two thousand
0: and two. So. Then, Anthony, given the first edition was published in 2002, which is nearly nearly 20 years ago, I guess now, isn't it? Well, why, did, why did we need a protocol, and, and what did we do before the protocol existed? Well, well, my view is that a protocol or something was needed because we needed some kind of authority
2: or some kind of a best means and methods to assess the delays. The good thing about the protocol is it gives us guidance now on the best methods to take, Depending on the on the facts of the uh, of the case, and also uh, the, the timing of the disputes. And back in that time, sort of two thousand and two, we had some high-profile projects which would experience a lot of delays, such as the Scottish Parliament Building, Jubilee Line Extension, Millennium Dome, and many others. So it was a case of you know delays in projects, as prevalent then as they are now. But there was there was a, a need for an authority for um, the best the best means and methods for dealing with them when it came to disputes. Uh, managing time and cost uh, key issues Where the NEC2 suite of contracts was in use that pla- uh, placed a greater reliance on the program and, uh, as a management of a contracting tool as it is now been developed further for NEC3 and 4 and so I guess all in the time was right for protocol to be a leading organization such as the SCL to pull these issues of delay completion altogether
0: in one place brilliant thank you um- So on the, the, I think you might have mentioned already, but is is the protocol a contract document or can it be a contract document, Tom? So,
1: Stuart, I guess um, if you look at what the protocol sets out in that regard, it's pretty clear that it's not intended, that the protocol should be a contract document and it should not take precedent the express terms uh, of of, of that contract and the governing law of the jurisdiction that that it applies to. Um, I think what it tries to call for is a balanced and common sense uh, approach to support the contract and the law itself, but not override it. So in my experience, it's pretty rare, but if ever, have I seen it written into the contract as such. Um, Anthony, have you ever come across that yourself? I'm not sure. Um, I
2: certainly no, haven't. Um, no, not, not written into a contract. So. I often them refer to obviously when we're dealing with claims or disputes, but I've never seen it written into a contract.
1: Exactly. I guess, yeah, obviously both parties will, will reference it, uh, both the experts will reference it in any tribunal, but yeah, not, not really seen it written in. And um, and I guess it, it supports you know, the contract itself rather than try and be in the first term of it. Yeah, I remember I ran
0: one of our master classes over the course of two days in, in Qatar once, and there was a guy who sat right at the front of the room. For two days and spent the whole two days trying to convince us that he had a construction contract called the delay and disruption protocol and at every single opportunity for asking questions he said I've got this contract and I said "Ah, oh, not again <laughs> <laughs> really I've told you already it's not a contract <laughs> um okay so the second edition was published in 2017 um were there significant changes in it and what were they I guess that's for Anthony
2: yeah, so the second edition, I think the main thing for me as a, you know, working in delay analysis, being delay analyst, is there was a move away from the TIA being the preferred method, and there were four methods of delay analysis, particularly in, in the first edition, which then uh, was expanded to six, and then there was a greater emphasis on using retrospective methods for uh, time distant events, That's kind of the main one, or the main one that fogs up for, for us anyway, is delay analysts. but there were other, other um, changes in there, so there was uh, there was a bigger emphasis on record keeping in the protocol again that would aid the, um, the move from uh, looking at perspective to retrospective delay analysis techniques there was advice further advice on global uh, claims further advice on concurrent delay uh, disruption was revisited that's not slightly different and expanded on in the second edition and like I say but the main one for, for me as a delay analyst is the kind of the move away from TIA being the only preferred uh, method of analysis and as I say it's been expanded from four to six. And there's
0: good guidance in there now as to when each of those methods is best appropriate. And um, what were the, um, the criticisms of time impact analysis then? What was the, what was the reason for
1: the shift away from that? Um, Stuart, so I guess, um, obviously the first edition uh, called for the use of time impact analysis, or TIA, as we commonly refer to it, for both prospective and retrospective delay analysis, where the circumstances allowed, obviously the records and so forth allowed you to do that. I guess what drove the the move away from it? Firstly, I would say perhaps some case law. There were a few cases in the early 2000s that were quite critical of, not necessarily the TIA, but model methods of lay analysis itself. Whether that be Skanska Viegers, Great Eastern Hotel V. Lang, probably the main two that come to mind. And equally, just a general trend by the industry of of criticizing this approach, uh, particularly for retrospective forms of, uh, of analysis where you're looking at things time distant when the event. Or event or events arose. And I guess the real criticism is that the TIA is a prospective approach. And where the learners uses that approach in a retrospective uh, capacity, um, where the results of that analysis conflict with reality, i.e. the facts say something different, the built program shows something different, then really the TIA becomes unstuck in those circumstances. Um, so really, it's a kind of a there's been a general trend away from this method, in my view, and other perspective approaches, such as impacted as planned, which is even more easily cr- criticized, um, and I guess the, the approach really is that cause and effect as those approaches adopt is perhaps uh, gone out, gone out sort of a favor somewhat uh, for the more retrospective approaches, which really deal with the effect of delay first, and only then consider causes of delay to that critical path and the incident of delay along that critical path. Um, and really, that, that approach is probably seen as more objective um, and fairer to both parties. And certainly, the trend that we're seeing by opposing lay and ourselves in, in adopting a retrospective approach that, that, that considers things in that manner in terms of any kind of formal dispute.
0: Do you actually see... Time impact analysis
1: used very much anymore, or does it? Do, do you even use it very often? I think if I can answer that, um yes, we do see it. Um, it has a place to play, in my view, and that place is during the concurrency of the project, and that is what the SCL protocol does call for. So, whilst you are uh, close in time to the event arising, uh, the completion that of the project is is still to be determined in the future, then TIA is probably the preferred approach to adopt. It takes account of the contractor's progress. It takes account of the of a delay event at that point in time on a prospective forward-looking basis. If you read what the NEC calls for, um, it's essentially a time, time input analysis in terms of modelling um, compensation into the last accepted programme, and certainly it has a place to play in that regard. I think for retrospective delay analysis, it has fallen by the wayside. We see it a lot less, um, and I think rightly so. Um, Having said all that, we certainly see some contracts or insistence by certain clients in the Middle East on a TIA. I think it has more prevalence there perhaps than in the UK. Um, and, but yeah, on more, more limited circumstances, to be fair. Um, and it, it, you know, it has fallen by the wayside somewhat. And I think that's, that's a fair point to make. Cool. Yeah, I, th- I think that's understandable as well. When
2: if, you know, if you're doing a retrospective analysis and TIA is a prospective method which gives you a theoretical outcome so if you if the delay is time distance why would you uh, why would you want to calculate the theoretical outcome when you know what the outcome may be so the retrospective method would be far more appropriate i think everybody was told we, we still see any uh, we still see sorry um, tia's time impact analysis which is mostly on nec projects where it's not stated explicitly in the guidance 20 NEC, but it is basically what they're referring to
0: thank you Okay, good. Um, adjudication was perhaps in its early days back in 2002. It's obviously, it started around late 90s. Is the change of approach in methodology a reflection on the rise of adjudication or vice versa, or or is it completely irrelevant? I'm not sure, but it's possible. I think
2: the rise in adjudication means that you need the simplest or most effective way to communicate something to the adjudicator because you're restricted for time. And in our experience... Adjudicators tend to favor uh, the more simple approaches or the simpler way of doing things. And I think an example of that would be like house built programs, which you don't necessarily need the computer or the software to calculate. You could do these by hand and you can support them with relevant facts, photographs, for example. It uh, seems to be much more effective at communicating to people who aren't necessarily planners. So that's, that's, that's kind of, of, of how we see it. I think people tend to be more skeptical of theoretical analysis. that's going back to what we're saying about the time impact analysis i think if you can prove something with the facts let them speak for themselves i think i think that's probably the best way certainly isn't our experience
0: thank you for listening to the decipher podcast as always we've tried to ensure the accuracy of everything in the cast at the time of recording however no reliance should be placed on it and decipher consulting take no responsibility for any omissions. we hope you'll tune in again soon and thank you for listening